Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome to our listeners around the world. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is I get to meet and have these wonderful discussions with such a wide range of professionals that talk about their experiences, guidance, and stories from working within the industry. We've had producers, directors, writers. We've had camera professionals ranging from cinematographers, camera operators, assisting cameras, and everything else. I've spoken with actors who've performed both on stage and on screen. We've talked film, television, documentaries, music videos. Through all of our episodes, though, I don't think we've had a guest that can check off so many of those boxes that I just mentioned until today. Our guest today is a well-respected and successful writer and producer, which is what she does currently. As I mentioned, uh, she's had an impressive career, both in front of the camera, behind the camera, and everywhere else. I am very pleased to welcome the talented Mo Fitzgibbon to the podcast. Mo, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I think I would take up our entire time slot if we talked about every single thing you've done over the course of the career. It would have to be maybe a four-part series. What we do like to do is talk about your pathway, your journey, how it all started for you? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when you're a little kid, I grow up, you play with dolls or you want to be a policeman or you want to go to the war and, you know, a G.I. Joe. For me, it was like, gosh, I just want to be adventurous. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but let me pick up this skateboard Mm -hmm. and learn how to skateboard. Uh, Let me become a gymnast in my high school. So between gymnastics and skateboarding, I took those two things and I started skateboarding in South Beach on the pier on First Street. This is way back. And I would, it was sort of like Fat Albert's Junkyard. I don't know if you remember that cartoon, but these kids would get together and they would figure out how to have a great time using things like trash cans and broomsticks and stuff. And so I would go every Saturday to the pier in South Beach and take like trash cans and make like little high jump poles or I would take like beer bottles from the trash can and I would go do figure eights through them. And so and so I became a skateboard girl between the ages of 12 and 17, but it kind of became famous on the pier on South Beach during the late 70s. And a photograph was taken of me doing a handstand and it was a photographer for the Associated Press. And this picture went around the world on the cover of every newspaper, both in the U.S. and overseas. And it was a picture of me on a skateboard upside down on the pier because it just happened to be a huge weather front of blizzards and people being snowed in and whatever. And there I was in my little copper tone white bathing suit. And and so that really is what happened. I became well known for skateboarding. I actually think 
I've seen that picture. I don't know if it was in a documentary about skateboarding or may have been in, like, was it in Lords of Dogtown or one of those Dogtown movies? I know that focus on Southern California and that group, but once you mentioned, like, the white bathing suit handstand, I'm like, I think I've seen that. Well, the, the really crazy thing about it, I wasn't even in the business yet. And what happened, because I was well-known in skateboarding, my neighbor, my best girlfriend at the time, her mom was sort of like a pageant mommy. And she got wind of a casting for television commercials. And they were looking for a girl to do skateboarding. And my name got around town. And a famous casting director, Dee Miller, uh, she's passed on now, uh, she called me in and said, you know, we heard you're the skateboard girl. And that's how I got in the business. And that was how I got my first job in commercials as a talent with skateboarding. I went on to do Coca-Cola, Burger King, Junior Mints, Birdines, many department store, you know, bikini bathing suits, Speedo. So yeah, so I worked in front of the camera, but I was so fascinated by everybody behind the camera. And I think that's really what got me sort of thinking about it. How long did, or how many years did you spend acting in front of the camera before you made the decision to move behind it? And what was your first behind the camera job or gig? I had been auditioning for commercials and feature films series. So I went on to do small parts in Miami for The Champ, for Absence of Malice, Miami Blues, Miami Vice. So any and all films and movies and series that were shot in sort of the late 80s into the 90s, I was in it. But it was way, way before that in my younger years, like 16, that I got a job as an assistant uh, for photography. I would help out just getting things. So basically a production assistant. So I think I was like 16 and I was still working on camera and going to high school. We've talked a lot about how uh, there's no blueprint for getting into the industry. Everybody has their own story. Everyone takes a different path. Now you were kind of a little bit, you know, we'll call it dual track. You were you were working as a PA and then still acting on that in Southern Florida. And was there a point where you decided to take your talents elsewhere, see what's, see what's available or see what opportunities were either in Hollywood or somewhere else? Well, from that point on, um, you know, I ended up in Illinois. And I worked for an ad agency in Peoria, Illinois. Will it play again in Peoria, right? And so I was coordinating all their products for their department stores for Bergners. And I was working in Chicago, Wisconsin, and living in the Midwest. It was snowing. I mean, it was insanity. I was going to say, it's really cold. Uh, and I thought, what am I doing? This was well into my early 20s. And then I came home and I basically started over. Looking back, what were your inspirations, like influences? Were there movies, TV shows, documentaries? Like what really inspired you? Well, quite honestly, it was that day that I was doing that handstand for the national commercial upside down. And I could see all the dollies and the cables and the lighting and the people. I was just enamored by that. And I thought, wow, I'd really like to do that. You know, maybe that's where I belong. But when I came back home from Illinois, I started working independently, trying to get jobs in the business. And I also landed another job at an ad agency. And I was there for a few years. And I was head of that department, really putting everything together. Uh, but sadly, I wasn't getting the credibility. I wasn't getting the money. I wasn't getting respected. And so I just turned around and I incorporated 
Mo Fitzgibbon while I was working the day job. And then I took all my sick days, which uh, accumulated to about 21 days. And I took short ends of film reels and I built my director's reel. And then I knocked on every door for people to hire me from production companies, famous ones, Filmworks, Pigeon Productions, uh, Walk on Water. I mean, so many. And they embraced me. As a matter of fact, it was Pigeon Productions, Louis Paloma, who's a great director. Um, He gave me my first job out of the agency. And so as I became more knowledgeable as a production coordinator in the field, even though internally at the ad agency I was producing technically, I was already hiring directors. I mean, as Mo Fitzgibbon, the agency producer. So I was already looking at directors and production companies. So I understood what had to be done on that side of it and on the other. When we had spoken, you had told me an an interesting story. And I think it was around this time where uh, you were starting to be referred to as Mo. And you discovered that at that time, and we're still working through, you know, a man's world by using Mo instead of your full name, which I won't say you you can say what your full name is. You, you found that by going by Mo, you got more responses and more doors open. And so, so true. So, yeah. So as I was working with other companies, you know, I had great opportunities. I was production managing high end commercials. I work with Ridley Scott, Spike Johns, famous directors that are famous today that were just commercial directors back then. So what happened was, um, you know, my name was Maureen Fitzgibbon. I'll never forget it. My card was Maureen Mo Fitzgibbon, right? I wasn't getting those opportunities. So I sent, I had been asked for a reel and somebody said, Hey, we'd like to see your reel. And um, so I eliminated Maureen because I felt like, even though I love Maureen, but everybody was disconnected with that on that mm-hmm. side of the hiring. So I received a letter back. It said, Dear Mr. Mo, it was such a pleasure. We loved your reel. We'd love for you to meet you and come into the agency. And so when I walked in, I wasn't Mr. Mo. I was Mo, Ms. Mo. <laughs> I don't know. They hired me because once we sat down and they knew that I had a vision and I could get us through it, they were fine with that. It's interesting. I do want to talk about that later about how the industry, I think, has made some progress. Yeah, women in the industry, but definitely still still more to go. But, you know, taking you back. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. I mean, I'm just thrilled, uh, you know, at a time when women were not really being hired as commercial director. So from commercial directing, I went into long form television. I began writing. I began uh, doing documentaries, infomercials. So I was getting deep onto the long form side. I had moved, accomplished great deal of work and credibility in commercials, both as a line producer, a producer, and now building my own director's reel. So with that and the incorporation of Fitzgibbon Inc., I began a production company with editors and people. And I helmed that company and became the director of that shop. So it was different now. It was a different deal. I worked solidly for eight straight years and I was billing a little under two million a year from the girl at the ad agency that nobody would give a chance to. It's a, like I said, I love getting to know our guests and hear their stories. And it touches me. Especially the inspiring ones, especially to, you know, women out there that do want to get into the industry. And, you know, sometimes the bad stories get more press or make their way around more than the good stories. Definitely, it's a, 
you're someone to look up to for them. And you know, you mentioned a lot of projects. What are some of your most memorable projects? I was just about to go there. You and I are right that, on that. It is like, like yeah. is the is the crowning okay, moment for there a commercial? There is crowning moment. Okay, so okay, here's the crowning moment. The crowning moment is after knocking myself out, the unsinkable Molly Brown rising up from the waters and the depths of hell in the production industry, as they say. My partner, Robert W. Walker, well-known broadcast guy, Robert W. Walker on Y100, Bill Tanner and that whole scene. And he played Gloria and Emilio Estefan's song, Conga, and crossed them over into the U.S. So when they were running around begging people to listen to their cassette, nobody would do it in the U.S., but Robert W. Walker did. And so they were forever grateful for that. And once the young man who became their media director was hired, was also working with Robert Walker in the station. And so the minute he had an opportunity to do a production, he called him and he said, Frank, you need Mo Fitzgibbon. And that is how I got working with the Estefans. And it was a 17 year journey. Yes, I produced HBO specials for them, VH1 to 1. I wrote The Intimate Portrait, which is one of the very, uh, there were like three biopics done, is the foundation for the musical On Your Feet. I have a Grammy nomination from work from them. I was up against Jimi Hendrix. But, you know, Gloria Stefan was up against Jimi Hendrix, but it was my production. So we thought, oh, well, Jimi Hendrix, I don't know. <laughs> just, of course, Jimi did win. But I'm just saying that's the journey. New York Festival Awards, Ad Agency Awards, World Medal Awards. We did the Reach video for the Olympics for NBC in 1996, which had 83 billion viewers. And our name was on the screen on Easter Sunday. Oh, wow. I mean, things that I never thought I would ever have in my lifetime, okay, happened to me. So one, uh, thank you. I now have Conga in my head. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. If you are thinking of Conga and dancing around to it, take a picture and tag us on, on Instagram. Just a little shameless plug there. I love that. So we've had some commercial cinematographers, directors, producers. And you know, talk about crowning moment. Is a Super Bowl commercial still like what people, what ad agencies or companies strive for? It's like, like we want to do a Super Bowl commercial and blow $5 million. Well, I don't think they're all blowing $5 million anymore. I think you could look at a commercial. Some could be $5 million. You know, I think the average, it's weird. It's whatever the client wants to spend at the end of the day. But I mean, like the average commercial to even a national, I mean, we used to get 350,000 for 30 seconds. Now I remember doing an estimate for Firehouse or whatever Firehouse subs. Uh, this was like when they first rolled out, mm -hmm. this was a national commercial and we were, and it was tabletop and we were at $44,000 for a national commercial for tabletop. I mean, that's what happened. What happened was the digital framework came in to mind. The kids are graduating college, jumping out of cars with like small digital cameras. Mm -hmm. People aren't paying the kind of money. They're not paying for the company fees. They don't, the director, you know, it'd be all about the directors and the rosters. And so all these things just started to disintegrate on the invention of new, techno mm -hmm. uh, new technology. Uh, but the average commercial just depends. They're far and few between, but they could be anywhere from 50,000 to 5 million, but very rarely 5 million. Now uh, we have another thing that we have to think about, which is AI, but we won't go there today. Uh, so yes, I think it's all important. And um, 
So when we see those, those are expensive and those are coming from national agencies. Mm -hmm. And then there's some really ridiculous ones that you're like, that looked like it didn't cost anything. So, yeah. Keep it on the same topic. We've talked a lot about, you know, now the streaming networks and now there, you know, you could get a, a lower price streamer if there's commercials. But the networks, you know, the big four have the price for airtime on commercials just skyrocketed because, you know, I mean, they, they need them. Well, basically, when we look at linear television, that's what we call network television television and cable when we see we're talking about the small screen the tv so you you have uh, hundreds of channels each channel has 24 hours of programming in those 24 hours of programming is 44 minutes or 30 22 minutes of content and then wrapped around that you hope are commercials so this is why television is crucial crucial in the sense of like um, scripted television. You have reality television. So every channel is different. You have Spike, you have A&E, you have whatever. So whatever their block, so they, whatever new shows are up, they go to a thing called Upfronts every year and they bring those new shows, those sizzles, those pilots, and they look at them. And it could be NBC with like four shows uh, with Howie Mandel or whatever. And so the advertisers are there to see if they can stick their clients advertising in that time block. So it depends on the show. It depends on the time block. And without those commercials, there's no production for the shows. Because if you have one hour of programming and 15 minutes of commercials and they're 30 seconds each and they're a million and a half, and your episode is two and a half million, well, you're going to do pretty good because you're going to make that production will be paid for with the advertiser money. So that's basically how it works. And maybe even a lot more. We know that the Super Bowl, who knows what the time slot was, a million, I don't even know. Well, that, that's why I said 5 million. I think it was 5 million right. 30, for 30 you seconds. You mean to be past, in yeah. the slot. That's the slot, Not yeah. the production. Right. I was talking about the production. Yeah. But just imagine that's the kind of bank you're looking at. And secondly, that's not normal. Like on a regular week, if you're on NBC, those spot breaks can be 500,000 up to a million and a half. If it's Criminal Minds, if it's uh, Chicago PD, it depends on the ratings of the show. It depends on the viewership of the show and how many eyeballs we're going to get on the product. Fascinating. We're going to uh, continue talking about money in the business. But before that, Paradoxical Films and Cinevideotech are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story, a hands-on masterclass taught directly by Egon Stefan Jr. In this class, you will learn how to work with actual 16 millimeter film, film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to enroll. Hurry, as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. back today i am joined by mo fitzgibbon we talked about commercials the commercial world you know they're made how they get on tv things so commercials obviously part of broadcast television some other things there's so much content out there today there's so many shows in fact i want to give a shout out to sandy leiterman who's a broward county film she actually made the point that we should start referring to it as the screen industry not the film industry because there's so much television and when you watch something on a streamer is it a show is it a movie you're an expert in everything you have a background in everything where does all that start it's not it's not expertise you know i tell people there's two things fearless and failure these two things make you knowledge expertise comes when people call you and rely on your 
knowledge. Egon Stefan is an expert, okay? For me, what happened was commercials, big business, a lot of billing, million a year, three editors, a whole shop now. Now I get my first call from VH1 and what they wanted from me was to do a VH1 to one with Gloria Stefan because I was working with Gloria. They loved me and they're like, oh yeah, let's bring Mo in. She'll write it. She'll bring the team in. And that was really my first for foray into network cable. Uh, that's where you get a contract. You have to deliver. It's a period of engagement. You have to bring in certain things. You have to shoot your show and cut them a line cut first so that they can start making promos that are starting to, that will be released in the next six weeks for something that's going to air and be promoted for something three months later or six months later. So you're, you are so committed when you're working with a network, they own you. But here's the thing, there's another side of it. We can get those jobs and be a work for hire and do those shows. But there's something else that keeps me up at night. And those are things that I wanna do, like write a movie, get a deal done, work with Aaron Sorkin. Um, so after great success, you know, my partner, Rob, he's like, you know what? You got to hunt where the ducks are. We're going to LA. You belong there. You should have been there a long time ago. And I had already started planting the seeds in Los Angeles. I became a women of film of the Los Angeles chapter. I became member of AFM. I went out there for real screen. So I was playing Hollywood and still in Florida. But once I got those scripts created and those treatments and those show ideas, I knew that those networks were gonna be in LA and that's where I had to sell that show at. So we packed it up, the 18-wheeler came down, the Beverly Hillbillies, loaded up, went to Hollywood. Okay, we dragged the business, the people, the edit, the baby, everything, and we remained bi-coastal for over eight years. And in that time, I learned things I never would have learned staying in Miami, but it also gave me another side of the industry that was really fantastic, like, this is it, okay? Like, I never thought I could write a screenplay, and I have. I never thought that I could get my documentary on the Investigation Discovery Channel, and I did, okay? And those things happened in LA. But at the same time, it is so brutal. I tell people, I've been beat up and ripped off by the best, and it's a hard place to play. And if you don't have, I wanna say the cojones, <laughs> but if you don't have that- Intestinal fortitude. If you don't have it, you're gonna sink there. So I tell people, like I have a movie right now, it's titled Miss Pink, it's fantastic, I did not write it. I was at the Producers Guild of America pre-pandemic and I met the writer there. She was a book author and she wrote this book called Miss Pink and she said, well, I have a rough draft. And I said, well, it's inspirational. It's about a woman who loses everything. She's at the top of her game and she loses everything and she becomes homeless and she gets her a job at basically like a dog rescue. <laughs> of course, she's a genius, right? She can turn that dog rescue into a foundation and make a lot of money. But I found the movie very heartwarming, very women empowerment because they do rise up. And right now I'm in, in talks with a production company with a to fund $10 million on that movie. Now, would I be able to have these discussions about a $10 million movie if I didn't get that script? You know, it's pen to paper. If you have a single idea, a single idea, a reality show, whatever it is, you've got to sit down and you have to write the synopsis, the log line, the theme, characters in it, 
A story, B story. You're going to make a thousand mistakes. I have 52 versions of one script. Every time I walk it in the door to a different showrunner, he hates it. He loves this part. He doesn't like that part. Let's make this a woman. Let's get rid of him. You name it. And so you just go with it. You just go with it until you get the deal. Mo, you just said a lot of things and some really great points that I think I, I want to call out for our audience. The first is, it's a tough business. You have to be prepared to hear no a lot, but you also have to have you know faith in yourself, trust in yourself. It's a commitment. Writing's a commitment. I know when I've you know tried to write and you know you try to set up time for write, but you get back from work or you got to isolate yourself for a weekend and you turn on your computer, you open a final draft and you're looking at it, and before you know it, you spent an hour just staring at your screen to try to get that first line. The other thing that I want to go back is um, it's a small industry. Everybody knows each other. And when you got that call, it shows like how important your reputation is. And I think especially to young filmmakers, you know, young people that want to get into the industry, be aware of how you're being perceived, whether you're working as a PA, whether you're a second, second, second AC, do if you're just doing the slate, like people will remember who you are, but people definitely will remember the bad people, you know, the people who are gossiping. Your reputation is so important. And I love the fact that, you know, you've really built yourself a solid reputation and it's well-respected. Well, you know, it's interesting because I tell people the journey is however you make your journey. So we always say, well, what do we want to be when we grow up out of film school? We come out of film school, of which I did not. My film school is School of Hard Knocks. So there are people who are born with what they do. And I was born with it. And then there are people who go to school to try things out. Here's the thing I want to say. No matter whatever it is that you dive into, whether you're directing, writing, producing, production, designing, DPing, I mean, it's all of the above. It all matters. Mm -hmm. Above the line we call is script, executive producers, writer, directors. Below the line is everybody from camera on down to locations and everything else. We have to understand the line items. If you're a writer, okay, this Miss Pink project that I took on was a book. And what better way to come in selling is with a published book. Mm -hmm. So I had already been beat up by everybody and discredited because, you know, well, we have that, that's already similar. So you have to do your homework. If you're going into lifetime television and you know you have something unique and special and you think it's for the network, you better go check and mm -hmm. see what they're developing, see if there's a space for that material and see if you can get in to pitch that. And when you do, you better have that pitch down like, like an Academy Award winning conversation. It's got to be very natural. You have like the way we're talking, the way I'm speaking to you, I have to talk about my ideas like this way. Okay. It's not so perfect and such, but if they go, well, I don't like that. What else you got? You better have a second show in your back pocket because when you get in that room and they see you're coming in with great ideas, maybe they're not the buyer for it, but they like what they're listening to and how you're delivering that. And so when they then turn around and say, hey, I love that show. Tell me more about it. You better break those characters down. You have to show the life of this show, the, the color and the flavor of the characters and their traits, everything. And then they might turn around and go, okay, what happens in year two? 
And if you don't have an answer for year two, mm-hmm. they know that you're not ready for to be in the game. Get your series Bible ready. Because you have to have a year two summary. And not just that, they might say, well, you haven't been, you haven't show run a network show. So who are showrunners that you think that we work with? So you have to go and make sure you look at their shows that are on the air or shows they produced and see who their showrunners are. I already started calling those showrunners to see if they would be interested looking at this show for them. So it's the show for the network, but the showrunner is the guy who's going to steer it through. With pitches, you normally have maybe five, maybe 10 minutes in there. Are there longer segments? 45 minutes, they bring you water. Never drink it and never open it up. I'm telling you now, if you leave that water bottle there, they don't like it. You pick up your water bottle. These are tips. Interesting. Okay, but when they offer the water, I say no thank you because I don't have time for water right now. I don't want to open up water. I don't want it wet on my hands because I'm going to put pitch cards out and I'm going to walk them through a whole presentation, a color like I gave you earlier. I gave you, this is a pitch card. We leave that in the room. I don't know that particular show, Masters of War, Soldiers of Distinction. We shot a documentary. We cut a sizzle reel out of it. We walked in, we went to History Channel, Smithsonian. We got in the door and we went to real screen and we had meetings, but everything, oh, it's too glorifying war. So you don't know, but you have to understand who the buyer is. What is in development now? You do not want to walk in with something they're already developed. You're wasting their time. And then what shows have they done and what showrunners they were. It's interesting going back that you said in a pitch include showrunners that you think would be good where, again, going back to film school, film business, you know, and pitches, it's, you know, make it a point that they're not attached to this. This is just who you think would be good. You know, definitely don't give the impression that they're attached. I also want to go back, you're basically selling your ideas. How much of it are they buying you? Like, you know, yes, these are great ideas, but we really don't like the person pitching or just the opposite. The idea is okay, but the person pitch is wonderful. We want them. Does Does that come into play? No. If you're Rhonda Shimes, if you're Aaron Sorkin, they're buying them. Ryan Murphy, they're buying them. They could have poop poop. Those people are the only ones in Hollywood that can walk around without a script, without a treatment, without anything. So when I went to Aaron Sorkin, you know, I was having cigarettes with Aaron Sorkin outside of the Movie Guild Awards, you know, because back when I would just leave the room, I'd go out to the cigarette section and there's Aaron Sorkin and J.J. Abrams and whatever people are. And I would just go, oh, hi, how you doing? Start chatting, you know, before you know it, I'm getting an email for Aaron Sorkin, Mm -hmm. of which, by the way, was an AOL. I almost died. But. You know, I had conversations with Aaron Sorkin about a show Mm -hmm. titled Sentech 26. And that's when you know you're in the game. When you're chatting, when you're going to the WGA, the Writers Guild of America's screening, a private one of Star Wars, and the speaking panel is J.J. Abrams. And you are sitting there with 150 people listening to how J.J. worked a certain scene. These things all teach you stuff. Just because you're not getting the green light doesn't mean you made it in the business. You make it by being in it. We here today, we all made it. This movie, Miss Pink, if I get the 10 million, I've already got the cast ideas down who I see in the movie, like Hillary Swank. Because the movie is about dog rescue, Hillary Swank has the Hillary Foundation mm-hmm. and she is a dog rescuer. So I'm going in after every freaking dog rescue pet loving person in Hollywood 
to see this movie. I want the director of Beverly Hills Chihuahua to direct it, okay, because he grossed 140 million on that movie mm -hmm. and it was live action and my movie is live action. So I want that director. I'd love to see uh, Tiffany Haddish in it or maybe Wanda Sykes. I see Hillary. I see, um, you know, for Miss Wolf, I see Jennifer Coolidge. So I'm having the conversation. I'm giving you, I'm putting you in the room with me right now. What do you think? Are you interested in my movie? Just talking to me a little bit right now. Absolutely. Especially if anything with dogs, I'm in. Right. And so. Unless the dog dies. Yes. Then I'm no out. No dog dying. I'm out. It's I'm out. all about. John Wick, Marley and Me. No, all those it's movies. all about. I haven't seen them. It's all about, you know, uh, taking out the puppy mills and all of that business. But here's the thing. I love, I love Miss Pink. My presentations when I send a script out is the book, which is Pink. And it's called All Dogs Have Angels Too. And in it is a collar with rhinestones mm. and the script in a pink box. And that is the way we deliver it to the actors. Okay. Then there's the digital kit. No problem. After they get that box, they're like, holy crap, are you kidding me? How much is the movie? I go 10 million. That's it. 10 million. That's it. But the truth be known, if somebody gave me $2 million, I can get the movie done. This is the way it works. You get the movie done for whatever the F, you get the movie done. Okay? And that's it. <laughs> so that's it. It's interesting. So you talked about, you know, we're in the game. We have it. So, but how does somebody get into the game? You know, say you wrote a script for a pilot. You have a series Bible. You have years one, two, and three. You have all this stuff. Where does someone go? They go to people like me. There are consultants. There are people in the business. You have to pay them. It's just like anything else. If you want me to give you my intellectual property, my knowledge and my power, my 16 years in Hollywood, my 32 years of, you know, how I got to the top, you can call Mo Fitzgibbon and we could spend one hour on the phone and you will be off and running. I spent 16 years in Hollywood and I had lunch with every person who came from Florida, Miami, Palm Beach, and their children out of film school and sat there and told them what they had to do while I was living in Hollywood. And there is no guarantee. It is all about passion. It's about believing in yourself. It's about fearlessness. It's about realizing that you may not come out a winner that day. You're going to be so knowed up that you're going to be heartsick and think you're nothing to nobody. And they've just spit you out, chewed you up. You're a dog being dragged in. Like you're so sad. But then all of a sudden, a couple days later, somebody's calling for the material and you can't believe it. And you're jumping out of bed. Oh my God, I got to go over to Netflix. Somebody wants to see the movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. What do I do? And so now you've gone from this emotional, disastrous depression of hell because you don't think you made it. I have made it. I tell people I have made it. Okay. I've already achieved greatness in the business. I'm just a part of the group now running around with material. Okay. I'm at the festivals. I'm at the premieres. I'm on the red carpet. I'm at the Golden Globes. I'm chatting with Aaron Sorkin. I'm over here with this guy. And that's the way it works in Hollywood. So I would tell people, go out there, play Hollywood, go for a week or two, set up appointments, knock on the doors. If you get people like me or a consultant or whatever that can say, okay, your movie, let's read it. Okay. Then we're going to 
going to slash that sucker to death. Trust me. Because if that's a first draft, we're in trouble. I have never read one script that the first draft is great. All right. But if there is something in there, we are going to get down to the brass tacks of it and get that so that you will feel confident when you go in with your material. And that's what I'm here. That's what I would be saying to that young writer. Let's get it ready. Let's talk about how you're going to pitch it. Let's get your pitch materials. Let's get an attorney that says it's represented by a law firm. And let's see if you can get in the door. That's awesome. That's great advice. And again, uh, everything you say is just so inspiring. Oh, thank just you. everything. I, I love it. We're, uh, we're going to take another quick break. But before that, we would like to thank partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. M2 Productions, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm Howard Brand with our special guest, Mo Fitzgibbon. You talked about how you're in the game. You've made it. You know, you've been in Hollywood, you've, you've done all this stuff. I do want to revisit, we we're talking about women, you know, women in the business, women trying to get into as producers, directors. It's still an uphill battle. A lot of times there is some progress. Aside from shortening your name and going, and going by Mo, how did you like overcome that? What, you know, what were some things that you had to do as a woman to be able to get your foot in the door, to be able to get ahead of others? Here's the cool thing. Okay, I wore a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. That's what Mo walked in looking like on set. So I immediately held the room by in which the way that I came into the room. I don't lead my life emotionally. I am out for one thing this day, and that is that storyboard and that shot list. And we have to cross this football field together. And I'm going to bring that team all the way to the finish line. And I'm going to be under budget and I'm going to be wrapping two hours earlier so that the coordinators don't have a, a different word, but worry about the time and lunch and whatever. Okay, look, we're going to get every shot. That's why on my shots, my all my shoots, I have two cameras. You ask Egon, every shoot, we're talking film cameras. We're talking like movies. Every commercial I made is like a movie. Mm -hmm. Every music video I directed is written like a movie. All Everything I worked on, it, it was always heavy in gear. I mean, we're slugging along cranes and arms and whatever. Mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, like I am sitting with Egon, who's an incredible director and DP. But like this guy is so over the top, if you are a director and you're working with this guy, he's going to come to the table, look at the board. He goes, this is how I'd like to shoot this. This is how I want the lens. We'll do this lens on this scene. It is mapped out. The lens changes, the time in which we're going to shoot it, how we're going to get it through. Even if we have faders, it's action dolly, action talent. There's four different actions on my shoots in every scene. And usually I am standing on the dolly with him as they push us down the track. What are those four shots? What are those four uh, actions? These were action dolly, action talent, action background, and action if there's a light, if there's like a light or a sky pan or, you know, for certain things. So I know I want the girls to come in after the dolly moves. And then I want the dolly to come up 
a little higher so we can see them. So it's like they're being followed and then we boom up. And so you have to know this language. So if you're working with a guy like Egon, you go, I love that. We'll dolly in, then you'll do a boom, and then we'll get the kids in the back, and then we'll get the juggler to start juggling, and the the other guy with the monkey on the shoulder, and we'll get them all in, and the girls will laugh all together at the same time. Perfect. Now, I have cried on my shoots. Cried. Not from being a weak little feminine, okay? but crying because I have rain, I have a plane, I have time against me. I just need this one last shot, please. I don't care, let's make it happen. Buy the freaking extra roll, it doesn't matter. So that's what happens, that's why my reputation is as it is, because every agency and every client and every network and every executive producer and every artist and every person knows that I will go to the ends of the earth to make that happen for them. And that's why I'm still standing. But when we get into television and the movie business, it's so hard. There's 100,000 screenplays that get circulated in Hollywood a year. Mm -hmm. Only 10,000 get looked at and only 200 might get a green light and only 10 or 20 might go to pilot and everything else is probably sitting on the desk for a conversation that would look like maybe 24 months. So when you get a movie and you get funding and you write the script, you're not gonna make any movie for 24 months. You gotta get the money, you gotta get the director, you have to get the distributor, you have to get all the, besides your beautiful, fabulous script, we have to get what we call soft money, we wanna secure a director, we'd love to get, uh, even if it's not the director, like I want this director from Beverly Hills Chihuahua, but the girl getting the 10 million, she wants to direct it. So I'm in a really tricky spot there because she would be perfect. But if I want to get Hillary Swing, I might have trouble with this director because it's not the Beverly Hills Chihuahua guy who's going to guarantee 140 million in box office, okay, worldwide. That's what he did in Beverly Hills Chihuahua. So our little $10 million movie with that director and Hillary Swank could push this movie over the top, a little movie getting done for nothing and becoming a worldwide box office. Yeah, it's amazing being an AD, producer, director, pre-production, you know, everything we're doing, breakdown, schedule, shot list and all that, but how much is done or has to be done before that? And, you know, it's, some people say it's an ugly part of the business. Others say it's the best part of the business because that's where you get your money. It's definitely the most important part of it. But now there's uh, independent filmmakers, you know, that are able to make no budget movies. You know, they're able to, they're shooting on their phones. You know, they're using equipment and they have these, this content made and whether they're using social media to get it out, YouTube channels, it's, uh, it's a different game. Well, it just depends on what you want to do. For me, with this movie, first of all, I'm not going to take anybody's money unless I can tell them how they're getting their money back. And in Hollywood, people take money all the time and they never get their money back. So I don't want to be in that circle. I really want the real thing. Okay. If you're fine with just making a small movie and we've seen moonlighting, we've seen these films just blow up and you're like, holy crap, how did they do it? But they did it because they are fearless. They have failed. And they did not give up. Mm -hmm. And that is it. For me, 
when you own a production company and you have to keep your engine oiled and you have people and employees and insurance and office space that costs seven grand a month in LA or whatever, and your parking spot, which is 200. And after they turn the air condition off at six o'clock, you have to pay extra for the air condition to run. This is what it's like to be in a business in LA. You're like, okay. Uh, so I'm just saying like everything matters. And so for me, I would have to, that would be like, that's like me loving all of that, but I still have to be the producer trying to get commercials in, mm -hmm. trying to get a documentary, trying to get a deal at VH1 for another one-to-one. -one. I have to keep the roof over our head, the edit bays up with technology and the three or four employees. Mm -hmm. You know, I did this from the time that I was 31 to basically, I don't want to date myself, but you know, 55 years old. Okay, working like that and not and having sleepless nights, having clients not pay me, then it became lawyers or everything gets wired in now. I don't mm -hmm. even move. I don't do anything without 50% wired in right now. So you learn how to do business and you learn how to deal with the sharks and you cover your butt and you get an attorney. Um, and I love my attorney, Larry Verber. He's amazing. He believes in me. And he's probably like four fifty an hour. I don't know. But every time I do a letter, I always say the material is represented by the law firm of Larry Verbit, Hollywood, California. Okay. I call him up and go, Larry, uh, I sent a script out. <laughs> he goes, did anything happen? Not yet. Not yet. But, you know, you're going to be you're going to be all over that. Okay. Uh, so, you know, but it's so important to have people who love you, support you, stand by you. My partner, Robert Walker, we started, he had Walker Sound. He was a huge broadcaster in radio. He built radio stations in Florida and all over. And um, our first editing was a D-Vision. Like it was way before Avid. We had fair lights. I mean, we had things, we had our first fax machine. Okay, cell phones. What? When I think about what we didn't have in Miami and how we all made it, I always tell people, dude, we had nothing, okay, nothing. So when we look at, oh, the film incentive and this and that in Florida, we never had it then. They never had film incentives in the 80s and 90s. They only got it like in the last 10 years. So there's a lot of work going on in Miami and South Florida and Palm Beach. Palm Beach did has 47 cable television shows going off there. I'm just saying there's a lot more to our industry than we know, but but at the end of the day, all these things matter, your knowledge from commercials to music videos, to infomercials, to documentary, those infomercial transition helped me with documentary. The documentary helped me with reality TV writing and development. But before that, I started writing my screenplay too. And first I thought it was a documentary. Okay, no, I did a treatment, I did a sizzle, and I walked around Hollywood with it for five years. I didn't have anybody. I didn't have anything. I, I had, um, you know, and they're like, eh, eh, I don't know. Uh huh. Finally got it done six years later. That's how long it takes on Investigation Discovery Channel. That was huge. We got a 77 share on a Wednesday night. I said, holy moly, this is it. I'm going to get the movie done now because I have a documentary. It's like a book. I have a book. I have a documentary, a 77 share. Do you know how many people is a 77 share on a Wednesday at 10 p.m. That's a lot of people that you're into the under 10 million. You're between five. That is a lot. So now I could walk around and say, I got a 77 share. It's been rerunning for 1600 years now or whatever, but that didn't help. But what that did help is get people involved 
to see it, actors, to show it to other entities who loved it but wanted a different twist on it. And so it just took me to another place, took me to another place. Um, you know, we were getting funding to uh, during pandemic on one of my movies and the pandemic hit. OK, so the movie business tanked. So this is what happens. You could spend one hundred thousand dollars, have a documentary, shop it for years. Fifty two versions. Everybody attached. Esai Morales, Pitbull, whatever. Five hundred thousand. You name it. Documentary numbers, people. And it doesn't mean you are getting that deal done. Documentaries. I think a lot of filmmakers that want to make documentaries are also scared because how do documentaries make money? Can documentaries make money? Like how does, what's the market like for them? Well, documentaries are different. Like HBO is a big fan of documentary. Their average budgets on documentary are two to four million. If you've already shot your documentary, they will acquire it. So when they acquire, it's called acquisition, right? It's like anything else. So a lot of people go out, shoot the documentary and cut it and make it and everything. And then you could go and you could go to Nat Geo with that documentary. It depends on what the content is. If it's, uh, hey, the biggest thing right now is transgender operations. Okay. If your documentary is on transgender operations, you're getting a deal done. So start thinking about what your movie, what your documentary is, who could buy it, and that will determine everything. What are networks and stations? What are they looking for today in documentaries? Well, so we have a couple ways we can look at a documentary, right? You have a typical documentary on the average could be a little under two hours. Sometimes uh, a channel like a history channel would be very interested in documentary. It could be anything like journey to Africa and visit the elephants or whatever, a day in a life. It's whatever that network is looking for. You can tell what they want. We had uh, Beyond the Bars and basically Beyond the Bars was about parolees coming out and becoming, you know, members of society again and getting a shot. And I don't know if you know this, but there's over a hundred corporations like Rubbermaid, Hilton, Gillette, that employ parolees. Boeing is the largest. So there are many companies that would hire a parolee uh, based on good behavior. A lot of them are walking out with college degrees now and they're not going back. There's no recidivism. There's back on track. We thought for sure we were going to get a green light. Kim Kardashian just, you know, got uh, that woman freed. Uh, we had the first act or whatever that um, the previous administration along with Kim Kardashian made happen. That meant like freeing people that really shouldn't be in prison anymore for things that happened 20, 30 years ago, whatever it was. We thought it was a no brainer and a winner. We got it all the way to Netflix. They were very, very interested. We're talking four weeks mm -hmm. of Netflix email. Okay. And that was very exciting. We knew the pitch was great. We knew everything was good and they passed, you know, we were at, we with that, we went to a uh, history channel so it just depends. It, it could have been too heavy for them. We don't know. You know, in the end, it's not for us. We have something similar or we're already looking at doing something. We have something right now that we're looking at that could be a little close to that. Right. So that's why it's important to do the homework. And so anyway, with that, you know, that project is still available. Things come back. 
They come back all the time. That's the crazy part of it. But with documentary, you can do a short form documentary, a long form documentary, an anthology. But if you have a documentary and it's canon, it's riveting, right? You can go to HBO and try to pitch that documentary. It's already canned. They might be very interested. They will actually give you a budget to acquire it and to edit it for their broadcast. It's same with um, Nat Geo. They acquire documentary. The Cocaine Cowboy is a very good example. Those guys, they paid for that. They spent 25 grand. That Cocaine Cowboy, since 2008, has been purchased hundreds and hundreds of times for $25,000 dollars over and over. They have made so much money on that. So that's a perfect example of a documentary that was shot by two people that put up their own money for 25000 and they have sold that documentary over and over and over. And it's still airing today since 2006. And Billy, if you're listening, you have an open invitation to come on the Cinema Pathway podcast whenever you want. Oh my God. And Billy, you are freaking amazing. Let me just tell you. Yeah, I got to uh, I got to see an early screening of his uh, the latest documentary that was on Hulu about the uh, the Falwell scandal. Billy's a great example. He's a Miamian. He films in Miami. He tells Miami stories. Miami, Broward, Palm Beach. We've said it before, you know, to producers, investors, look past the state level, you know, because even though Florida has no state incentives, Miami, Broward and Palm Beach all do. And there's so much talent down here, homegrown talent. You're a perfect example of that. Oh, my gosh. Just so you know, Sandy Leiterman. I have known her. She taught me how to do AICP budgeting. She said to me, you can do this while I worked at that ad agency, the late 80s. So... When we talk about people like Billy Corbin and Sandy Leiterman and, oh my gosh, there's just so many uh, people like Bill Griffay. Do we? Do you know who Bill Griffay is? Bill Griffay is like a movie pioneer here in Florida. And I would just say that everything is about the journey. Whether you are doing a documentary, a reality show, a feature film, a film, a short, festivals. We love festivals. I just judged 150 shorts that students made that out of 150, there were 25 that had my head spinning. They were, it was like Steven Spielberg. These kids are Florida kids. And I want to tell them that they can be Florida. They can go to LA. They can come home to shoot. They can run with the pack. And you can have success like I've had it. I think it's about being able to know there's like a gauge inside of you. When you know, you have to change it up. So I went from commercials. I went from music videos. I went from the... And by the way, the budgets that I got for music videos, they were 500000 700000 commercials, big money. I mean, my fees alone would be 10000 as a producer on a music video. I mean, my fee was 1000 a day for basically 10 to 15 days. Okay, that's the kind of money I was making in music videos and documentary. My production company was getting production fees and those on the average were 15 to 20%, up to 35 on above the line and below the line. So if you had 700,000, it'd be plus over and above 25% on that. And that's why we had offices and people and equipment and editors. And they've just basically have shredded that, that whole 
institution of production company. Okay, it became just rosters of directors. It just changed over time. I just completed a series of uh, gun violence prevention video vignettes and animation. I was brought in to cast the voiceover, direct it, and do the audio portion. And the budget for that, I was stunned, was a lot of money. Okay, considering the reason why I took that on, it wasn't video, it was animation. A big animation shop on the West Coast brought Mo and Robin to do the audio portion. I'm taking that job. Why? First of all, we have to do something about the gun violence issue. And these this is for the educational system. This is for the e-learning channels. And so if I can be a part of that in some small way and make a little money, great. If not, no problem. I'm going to give them the best talent and the best of everything. And I just completed those. We're on our fourth one now. We got these projects over the summer and we're still doing them since actually the first one went off in August and we just completed a third one. And so you see, I'm still working. Working. Okay, I'm still writing. I'm still teaching. If today you wake up and you want to write that movie, do it because it's pen to paper. If you can't put that on paper, you have nothing. And by the way, when I tell you, people will say, well, I can get the money or I can get the actors and I can get the great. I have the content. So content is king. Without content, there's no actor. There's no money. If you have content, if you have five shows, five sizzles, five decks, three screens, scripts and maybe some you haven't even wrote that you love because you're so inspired by it like Miss Pink. Okay, I did not write it, but I polished that script with a writer. We worked diligently for six months on a polish. And after that polish was done, she got interest. This is great stuff. I love, love hearing about it. We're going to talk a little bit more. We're going to take one more break and we will be back to conclude this wonderful episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase cinema pathway gear including t-shirts hoodies stickers and more last of all be sure to also follow us on instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more we'll be right back back talking today with Mo Fitzgibbon. Mo, we just talked about Miami. You know, filmmakers, Miami, there's obviously a big music scene. You were fortunate to spend a number of years working with, I'm going to call them music royalty. I'm definitely going to call them Miami royalty, uh, Gloria and Emilio Estefan. That just must have been a wonderful experience. I think our audience, you know, and I would just love to hear about it a little more. So early on in the first segment, I think, or the second, I think I told you the story. My partner, Rob, his colleague became the media director there. So he said, you need Mo Fitzgibbon. My first, very first thing I did with them was EPKs. Those are called electronic press kits. I swear by them. They did too. And they brought me in to direct. It was a beautiful EPK. It was on her album that it was like her going to be like, it was a Spanish language. I, I, I don't know if it's me, Tierra. It could have been. I'm not sure. But I directed that. It was an EPK. And then they liked me and I continued on doing other stuff. And before you know it, I was getting called for everything. And I'm telling you, I would bring it. I'd have flyaway packs. So we'd have this table. I'd have a switcher, literally and four cameras and people, and we would go and switch live right there in those interviews. So I would go back. This is how brave I was. I was never afraid 
to switch, okay? Because I thought, how beautiful. Let's switch this son of a bitch. I don't have to edit. I love it. Go to one, go to two, go to a two shot. Let's do it. It's going to make life easier. So I would come in. I always had gear. Like I came in heavy. I told you earlier, I brought the magic. That's why they like me. What happened was Emilio Estefan, he saw something in me. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) I can't do it. He gave me my start. He trusted me as a director. He made my name become world known. And this was a time when women were not hired and he hired me. And from that time on, I went on to do almost everything they had. And when he wanted to direct, and he loves directing, I was his producer. And I stood on the sideline. I never allowed credits to clog up the ego. I think I was kind of an ego-less person, you know, because women, we have to fight. So we're quiet a little bit. I was never quiet, you know, with the cowboy hat and the boots and everything. But I knew when to not talk. And I knew when to agree. And I knew when to say, that sounds like a great idea. And then when it wasn't, I would say, this is what I'm afraid of. I know you're not going to like this, but I think if I give you these layers of information, I'm going to protect your project. But I went on to do many, many things. I did the HBO special, uh, the Gloria Stefan Don't Stop DVD, the, and I'm not really good in my Spanish, but I, it's so amazing that 50% of what I did was Hispanic. Okay. <laughs> I even got a Grammy nomination, like I said. And also I sat with Emilio on many boards. You know, he was one of the original founders of the Latin Academy, the Laris. And he brought me in that to sit with him on that board to help bring that together. Like I was so lucky to be able to be in that orbit with that kind of love and commitment and and ambition and watch that whole thing happen and and the way they rose up and the way they give to the community there's no people like them and i love the fact he emilio has never once tried to take the spotlight away from gloria emilio he has done so much he is so involved with the community uh with with the music industry but i don't think a lot of people really understand how much he's done and how much he still does today can you talk about that a little bit he's a genius okay um He's a multitasker. He's an inventor. He just takes everything in and figures it out, figures out how it's going to work for her new record, what that video will look like, what she will wear, what the next restaurant will be, the next bongos, the next Estefan kitchen, the hotel, okay, which I eat at in Vero Beach. I mean, this man is an incredible, wonderful, and also very serious guy. And I think my journey with them is because they trusted me and I was honored. I have seen fans cry and hold Gloria coming from backstage saying how she changed their life. Okay, now when you are watching videos of these kinds of interactions, and this is a worldwide adoration. I mean, back in the day, we used beta SPs and stuff. So they would go on tour and they would ship me the betas, right? We had a guy go on tour with them, whatever. And I had 300 beta SPs and this is Spain. And when you see the adoration, the love and the respect they have for these people, and that's how I feel with them even today, even after all these many years, I don't work with them today, but they love me. I love them. We talk on the phone. I texted Emilio last week. 
I don't know how to thank him enough for giving me this wonderful career. You started working with him after a very interesting time in a very bad bus accident that a lot of people, I remember I was in college at the time. A lot of people thought, you know, she'll never come back from that. I think I broke her back. But then you were with them during a big change in the music industry itself coming into the 21st century when started with Napster and then iTunes and everything. And you were there during that transition. I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, I think our audience find it really interested to hear like through your eyes, what that was like being right in the middle of all that change. Well, it's interesting. And I go back to this, but, you know, imagine we were, when we were working with them, um, you know, we just got emails basically. <laughs> so yeah, that was pretty crazy. Again, we never let our client worry about how or when we just say i want to shoot this today get me a team over gloria just got a new thing happening and can you guys make it yes we can great he doesn't ask what camera i'm bringing but when i have to go give him the budget that's when they ask okay and then i say dude you are getting a digital beta camera back then can you imagine all the tapes so i went with them from the beginning with tape all the way to drives pretty much, all the way to sending files, uh, shipping files worldwide uh, when they were on tour, tapes, rough cuts, worldwide, courier. Do you know how much it is to put a tape, a show in a package that you know he's going to get in Spain the next day to look at, okay? Because we didn't have Hightail and we didn't have WeTransfer. So that's how we played. You know, we just rolled with it. And when the technology came in, we used it and we brought them straight into it with us. Very interesting. You mentioned Miss Pink yes. that you're working on. What are some of the other projects that you're currently working on or maybe see coming into your orbit in the future? Well, right now, I, well, at this moment, Miss Pink is, let me explain. So where we're at now is we're getting people interested. The script is done. The decks are done. The book is finished. The boxes are ready. This is a full-time deal. Okay. Because not only do you sit down and plot this out, but you have to start getting on the phone. So right now we have somebody who says, I have money, potentially. I like this. Who do you see in it? This is where we're at. I have another project titled uh, Centec 26. This is based on the true story of the river cops. This was the documentary that I got done in 2000, whatever it was, 13, that I see it as a film. I have Isai Morales attached to this. This is the movie that was being set up with an investor's package in 2020. And they said they had something like 5 million. It was little money, but it was enough for me because I wasn't getting the whole 5 million. So what happened was we put the investor's package together. What is that? An investor's package is the company, the project, the film, the film release. It shows the box office for U.S., then it goes worldwide, then it goes to SVOD. It's like a graph. Like It's like if you go ask people for money, the investor, it's like getting a bank loan or a mortgage for your house. So you get that. They're going to put a percentage on top of that, right? So you're using their money, right? So you have to think about, oh, how you're going to get their money back. And so I put the package together. I had everything. I had actors. I had a documentary. I had a decent script. Hey, I don't have a problem. You can bring in any writer your little heart desires to help polish this. If you think it's going to take it to the next place, this is the way you have to think. You can't be like ego. You can't say, oh, that's my movie and I wrote it and I don't want any other writers on it. That doesn't play good. If they want to bring a writer in, that has more credits than you. They like that movie. It's like the showrunner. I love your script. I love your concept, 
but I need a showrunner. I need a network approved writer. Okay, so you want to know what happened? I go, we have all these meetings. This is six months, investors package. I need this, I need that. And the guy says, look, we got the four million. I sat with uh, whatever it was, UTA, and they've loved your project, but they want me to put my money in something else. And so we're gonna allocate the first dollars to a documentary and it's on transgender operations. So I lost the 2 million for what I call above the line money because the other two and a half million went to UTA for a new new business, which by the way, failed. But the whole movie business tanked in 2020. So it already went south, but, but that's basically what happened. I had an investor with 2 million for what I call above the line, writer, director, actor, story rights. And that's all I needed because I don't even need you to give me a penny I just need you to put it on a piece of paper so I can go in and say, I've got 2 million. I've got Esai. I have a documentary, 77 share, 7 million viewers. They're going to go, okay, do, so what can I look at? So we took the, the documentary and we made a screener out of it because the documentary is stunning when you see it. Okay, The River Cops. That was directed by and produced by Stephen Peterson, who's incredible. His movie, his short film just got Best Director at the uh, Fort Lauderdale Film Festival. He's a fabulous guy. Anyway, and so with that, I was like, wow, I just couldn't believe it because I had already been in the journey since 2006 on River Cops. Six, I had life rights, I had script, I had treatment, outline, theme, actors, and maybe money that took me almost eight years to hobble through. And But I got a documentary done in between and I thought, okay, that's it, man. That's all it's supposed to be. Go away, throw that script up in the air, let every 300 pages float in slow motion. It's over, it's not happening. They don't want your movie, forget about it. It's a documentary, you did good, accept that. And so after I said, okay, that's it, forget the movie. Guess what? Somebody calls back, dude, I wanna see that movie. I wanna read that movie, okay? I wanna hear that movie. So where I'm at now on River Cops, just so you know, is I've taken that story and that documentary and all those subpoenas and court documents. And I am on chapter 47 for a crime novel and it's called Midnight Blue. And it's through the eyes of Detective Jay Perez, who was one of the investigators. And so we're on chapter 47. So now I got a book, I got a documentary, I got a script, I got maybe some money and I got two actors. Let's see, what else is it gonna take? In the meantime, I'm getting Miss Pink done. So that's how you have to play it. Random question, and I meant to ask this earlier. Do buyers ever buy ideas with, they're like, we like the idea. You know, it's really not for us, but we're going to buy it because we don't want anyone else to be able to make this. Like kind of like sandbagging, just buying, we just call it shelfware. Buy, you know, just kind of hoarding They call it content. hold it up. Hold it up. So let's say Netflix has uh, Narcos, but they know River Cops is out there. It's kind of a Narcos thing. So a showrunner from Narcos knows that I have River Cops. They will call me and see what's going on with River Cops or whatever. So it's a very sneaky business. That's why I said, don't go to that buyer 
go to a different one who wants the same thing or wants the success of that similar project. So when we are talking to people and they go, well, look, we're looking for crime shows. We're looking for, uh, we're looking for 80s. I got 80s. Okay, tell me about it. Okay, da, 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 da. So if you got scripts in the 80s, if you got scripts uh, based on transgender operations, if you have, uh, you know, uh, let's go to Africa and watch the journey of the elephants, or how about Pluto, cat channels? I don't know. But at the end of the day, there's so much and so many places to go. But if you want to make money and make a living doing it, you have to figure out how to sell it. And I think all the networks, you know, all the streamers, every year they do put out, it's not public, but it always seems to make its way, thank for the internet. They put out what they're looking for. Like it'll say story-driven crime or dark rom-com comedies and use that to say, oh, I have an idea. You know, I had an idea about this. I'm going to try try this one. They're good, they're good um, motivators. You know, the film business, You ha- if you can do what you love to do, and make a living doing it, then you're good. If you want to be, you know, people, it depends on how they want to live. I like living big, okay? Mm -hmm. I like my BMW. I like my house near the ocean, whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you want to work hard, then you can play hard. If you want to give up everything and every amount of ounce of time to like, if you ever just watch Elon Musk and his inspirational vignettes, honestly, this guy doesn't rest. I surely didn't rest from basically... Uh, from the day that I incorporated until basically I was 55 years old. And I'm still rocking. Okay, no, I'm not making that money. I'm doing what I love to do. And I'm just taking the things that I'm passionate about that I can help fix society with, whether it's gun violence videos, whether it's um, equality for women in film and television, whether it's teaching a young film student how to look at a storyboard and translate it into shooting it. So at the same time, if I get this $10 million movie done, which this is the way this business is, and people go, oh my God, you got a movie? Tell me about it. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, do you get money for that? No, you don't get any money until you get the money. That's the sad part. Now, some networks can give you development money, okay? That would be awesome if you're Kevin Cosner. So Hatfield McCoys, here's a perfect example, the History Channel. Mm This production company had it 10 years ago. They went everywhere in Hollywood. And these guys are network approved showrunners. They get deals left and right. They make a lot of movies for TV. They have series. Nobody would buy. This is the Hatfield McCoys. This is the most famous feuding family in U.S. history. And nobody was like, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure. They go to Kevin Costner. See, this is another way to get your deal done. Kevin Costner has a production company. Oh, well, maybe I should be looking at somebody who has a production company who wants a crime movie, okay, who wants a period piece. They walked over to Kevin, they pitched that show, and he said, I love it. I'll star in it, and I'll put up a million dollars. And they took Kevin, and they went to History Channel. And History Channel greenlit Hatfield McCoy's a miniseries for $17 million with Kevin Costner. And it was Emmy Award winning. Mm -hmm. It took home so many awards. And everybody thought those guys could never get that deal done. And they had a lot of deals. So that's a bright story. But that'll just go to show you how they figured out. Well, I have spent 10 12 years with the River Cops. I might get it done. I got it done as a documentary, but I'd love to see it as a movie, but okay. But if I get an actor and $500,000, well, I have an actor, but I don't have the money. Okay, why do I need this money? You need the money to secure a pay or play. 
Meaning I want to secure the talent and I have to give him 25,000. Let's say it's Joaquin Phoenix. He'll want 25,000 to say, I'm going to do the movie. Now that's called pay or play. That doesn't include the production date of that movie because you still haven't gotten all the funding yet, but you hope now with Joaquin Phoenix, you're going to get it. So, and by the way, I've talked to Joaquin Phoenix about River Cops at the movie awards, you know, in an airplane hangar in Santa Monica. Here's the thing. No matter what, everything comes from within. It's like looking from the outside in and you reverse that from the in out. And so you have to look at all those angles. It's like a 3D graphic. Mm -hmm. Every side of it is getting exposed in a 3D or 4D model. And that's the way you have to look at your life and your journey in the business or in anything that you love to do. Yeah, there's definitely, like we said earlier, there's no blueprint. There's no straight line. You say you have to be ready to and be flexible enough to know when you have to zig, when you have to zag. Um, and sometimes there's just a lucky zig or a lucky zag. I mean, you could, there's stories of this person was waiting tables. They got into a conversation with someone who wanted to see your script or you talked about smoke breaks. Um, I think Charlize Theron got Monster, where she won the Academy Award because she met the producer director when they were both stepped outside for smoke. Dude, and can you imagine, by the time I get done with my list of every dog-loving celebrity, actor, producer, sh whatever it is, because I'm already on the list, like in my cast of characters, I know the names of their dogs because I Googled, does Tiffany Haddish have a dog? Yes, she has a little dog named Chewy. Uh, he's whatever, you know, this Yorkshire Terrier. Or whatever. So after the cast page, right, I put an asterisk by the star, by the actor who has a dog. And then in the second page, I say Hillary Swank has Hillaroo Foundation, it's a dog rescue. Next person, da 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 da, they have a pet, Chewy, that she got from a dog rescue. Mm -hmm. Next person, she is a spokesperson for PETA and for the Humane Society. So I find out what organizations they give to, what, see if it works in the animal world anywhere, and I am listing it. And so my hope is to hit every one of those people. I love the uh, the detailed research, the detailed planning. I'm a big planner yeah. at heart. And, uh, you know, putting it together like a, uh, you have this report and you could answer any question. I could take you there. If you could have been in my pitch meeting in Malibu on March 9th, this producer just watched me and I spoke to her like I was in a conversation about Miss Pink, how she became homeless. Her husband was cheating on her. And then after that, her money was taken out of her bank account by, you know, a Bernie Madoff scheme, like a Bitcoin thing, you know, and she's just listening because I'm going, God, and then she broke her shoe and she went into a shop and she got a pair of pink sneakers and that's how she got the name Miss Pink. And so she's like, oh, wow. And then she's like, in five minutes, I had that movie from beginning, middle to end because you don't, you don't keep things from them. Remember, the buyer knows everything. People go, oh, don't tell them. Let them read it. No, you got to put in the picture. You got to let them know, you know, limo driver drives around in Hollywood saving drug addicts from overdosing in the back of the limo and rock stars and lesbians giving birth and whatever. Like you have to give them the show, okay? Because they're the buyer. So people are like, oh, I don't want to tell them. Well, they have to have it all. So you have to have, you have to have at least three to seven episodes plotted, paragraph, the pilot script, 60 seconds, a theme, an outline, character breakdown, and at least three episodes. Mm -hmm. 
and then a year two summary. That's what you need for TV. It's really, when you were talking about Miss Pink, you mentioned a lot of cliches and a lot of people want to poo-poo. Oh, you know, there's a cliche, there's a cliche. Which cliche movie, are you speaking? The, like, um, the husband leaves, she loses oh, her yeah. money. You know, but the reason that's they're cliches, they, want. they work, they sell. They, do. they sell. Yes. Yeah, you know, so it's that's why, you know, this film industry, the screen industry, it's so... <laughs> the screen industry. Also. It's so weird. You know, the dog thing is going to be good. And it's funny because I only like, like, crime, okay? I like drug dealer movies. Why? Because... I lived in Miami. I was dating a guy who was a law student at the U of M and he used to deal drugs like everybody did, okay, to make a living, right? I didn't know. What did I know? I thought the guy was nice. He was a lawyer. He's going to be a lawyer, I thought, you know? Uh, so I think I was just fascinated. I went to the mutiny. I went to discotheques. I went to Studio 54. Like I've, I've been there. I mean, I'm not aging myself, but I'm kind of aging myself because I've seen things and I've been there and... I had lion cubs, okay? I was uh, chauffeured to my acting classes at the Coconut Grove Playhouse, mm -hmm. you know, when I was like 18 or whatever. So I love Scarface, okay? Like, put me there, because I lived that life. So that is why that movie spoke to me. That's why that story spoke to me, because I lived the life, and I can speak to it and tell you about it. You mm -hmm. see? So when you love something, when you're passionate, you know, whatever... The pen to paper. I never, I was going to hire writers. I hired a writer out of LA to write the treatment originally. And everybody would say, just write it. And I'm like, no, he has credits. But I realized that is an insecurity thing. This is where you feel weak. People have said, you can't do it. You're a woman. You're this. You don't have credits. And the more they tell you these things is the more reason why you do it. Because they are afraid of you. They're scared of your idea and your power. Remember, just do it. When are you going to write your life story? Because it know. is just, good, I right? would watch it. I would read it. I would <laughs> invite you back onto the podcast. Absolutely. Anytime. And just like start from the day you were born, coming, coming to Listen. arriving for the podcast. Because everything Listen. you've done is so interesting yeah, and it's inspiring good, right? and and it's scary like i'm thinking okay so you know i'd like to see like about 10 more good creative years out of me but at the same time i feel like i've accomplished a lot mm -hmm. and i feel like now my heart is for others in the business i can totally relate there's you know sometimes when you're directing or writing you become so emotionally attached to it and that but as a producer it's such a great feeling knowing that you help someone else, like get their vision created, you know, turning their vision and this into is, reality. And this is the business that I've created now. It's called LAFLA Film Nation. This is where I come out and I say to people, okay, look, you know, how can you do business and be bi-coastal? That's one category. The second category is the script club. Okay, that means you want to come on in. We'll take you bring your script into the room and me and three other professionals will have read your script and we'll talk to you about it page by page. Okay, and these people have all had deals, have all done television. So I call that the script club, right? And the other thing is the below, the above the line and below the line. It's important. And also, what do you want to be? A director, a writer, a producer? Look at me. I started as a PA. I climbed the ladder. I was in every department in below the line. 
And that made me a better director, really. Mm -hmm. It made me a better producer because I understood those areas. But for me later, it was directing, but I could still be, I had to be the producer because I was also the president of a company. So not only did I have to direct that show, I had to produce it, watch that money. And that came from me doing it for other people. Mm -hmm. So when we do things for others and we learn from those other very well-known people, Ridley Scott, Spike Johns, these big production companies, anonymous content, you name it, all the biggies. They showed me how to do it. So I think what's important is that we just keep evolving, stay relevant, and just do what you can to keep fulfilling those passions. And that's what I that's what I'm doing now. I think you're definitely gonna get a lot of new fans. Oh off of I can't wait. So um where where can our audience members find you? So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me on Facebook as Mo Fitzgibbon. So you just type in Mo F-I-T-Z-G-I-B-B-O-N. You can absolutely instant message me. I will totally, as this beautiful, young, gorgeous, stunning producer over here Mm -hmm. knows. I'm accessible because I know what it's like not to have access. And the organization you just talked about that does the script readings, where can listeners find more information about that? You mean with my new entity that's developing? That's Mo Fitzgibbon. And that's actually not launched yet, but it will be launching within the next seven weeks. I'm excited about that. Mo, this has been awesome. I mean, if we could, I would just continue this into however long it takes. Because it's all about having the patience, the knowledge, and the heart. Okay, you guys impressed me when I saw all that fantastic work that you guys have been producing. And I listened to those podcasts. It was, I said, I want to be a part of that. So thank you so much for having me. We are so grateful to have you. And like I said earlier, you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come back on the podcast, or if you want to come back to just chat. If I get money on Miss Pink, I'm coming back. We'll be talking. We'll go to part two. No problem. That'll be amazing. Let's see if I get any progress. If I get one little scintilla of progress, I want to come back and tell you about it. That's awesome. That'll be great to hear. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out.